Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. Regret to inform you that it is Monday, but it is temporary. Eventually, we will get to the second day of the week and we'll all feel like we know how to do our jobs again. It's also cold. Yeah. I have a jacket on. I'm freezing in here. John wearing a hat, scarf, <laughs> mittens, 46 degrees outside. 46 We're not degrees. happy about Wet. it. Yeah. yeah. We have more. We have more than weather griping for you today. However, we have updates on Ukraine, including uh, wondering just how long the fighting is going to continue in Mariupol and just what is the real story behind all the uh, foreigners who we keep hearing reports of being trapped there. We are going to ask why, why? People like U.S. senators are saying American troops should actually be sent to Ukraine. We are going to talk about Turkey resuming attacks on Iraqi Kurdistan in a conflict that we really kind of thought we weren't going to hear any more about. We will talk about China's economic performance in the last quarter and why I at least keep seeing stories about China's economic growth alongside warnings of the terrible tolls of its pandemic policy, which I don't know if we have really seen materialize. And so I wonder how long those two will be presented together. You know, I wonder, I wonder if that stretch of, of crazy Chinese economic growth that was, you know, seven, eight, 10% over the course of so many years uh, was not just a, a fluke of, of, a, of a country that was coming out of, of communism and entering into pseudo-capitalism. I wonder if the, the Chinese have discovered something accidentally or on purpose they've they've discovered the right mix of government control and capitalism and that these high rates of growth are the norm i wonder if covid set them back a little bit and that instead of the media reporting that oh they had this great growth but covid held them back Actually, it's that their economy really is that strong. Yeah. That they really do have the ability to grow at these fantastic rates that we just don't have. I think that, yeah, I mean, I know that because we've talked to our uh, guest coming up now uh, quite often, and he, he will tell us, you know, China, one, China's economic uh, growth, its plans, its, you know, its uh, performance is either steadily ignored Right. In favor of more research on other, you know, other economic phenomena. Right. Or, yeah, attributed as a sort of fluke or a matter of circumstance or, you know, OK, it's good now, but it's about to crash. All right. Well, we're still right. we're still waiting. Uh, we are going to talk about uh, debt and the way now it's yet another problem that is going to be pinned on the war in Ukraine and on yep. Russia in particular. That's oh, right. all these countries, these developing economies that carry all this debt. Wow. It's not, you know, the problem isn't that they have accumulated crippling debt under the current, uh, you know, angelic rules-based international order that we have to fight so right. hard to uphold. The problem is, oh, no, interest rates are rising and they're not going to be able to pay the West <laughs> the fees that they owe them. That's um, right. We are going to talk about Infowars filing for bankruptcy. We're going to talk about Twitter making its poison pill promise. Uh, we're going to talk about... Debt. <laughs> so I already mentioned it, but we're also going to talk about taxes. That's what we're going to get into. American taxes, because, of course, today is tax day. And once again, uh, the Biden administration has collected a record amount of taxes. 
Last year, the Treasury collected a record $1.85 trillion worth of taxes. And now between October and May, uh, it collected more than $2 trillion. One of the things I don't understand there, I mean, $2 trillion is an awful lot of money, and it's actually more than what the federal budget is. So why do we run massive budget deficits every year? Is it because of the interest that we have to pay on the already existing national debt, which is something like $35 trillion? Mm-hmm. I mean, I no you would think that we would have an economy like the Chinese do. Yeah, you would think. think. You would think. It would be great. But the problem with these taxes is, you know, none of us really have any expectation of seeing anything from them no. anymore. And this is no, why Americans right. hate taxes, because you just pay it and you don't feel like you are getting anything back. Yes. Maybe public schools, right? But our public schools are really hit or miss because of the way they depend on the incomes of the communities they're in. Yes. And so then you're sort of scrambling to be in a in a county that you can barely afford so you can get into a better school system. Uh, or, you know, our roads are garbage, right? Yeah, our public transportation is garbage. Public transportation we were- is garbage. Healthcare is a, is a cruel joke. And yep. so I went and I thought, okay, well, what's a big, you know, what's like a big expenditure I can look at? I looked into the the infrastructure bill. Yeah. That's sort of the one, the one piece of the great Build Back Better plan that was passed. And, you know, where is that going to go? It's going to be huge grants to AT&T, and Amazon and Tesla for their roles in, you know, the the logistics involved in building, you know, not building roads, but, you know, dropping some dropping some wire, you know, hauling things around. There's going to be big, uh, big expenditures for metal mining companies for the metals electric vehicles are going to need. And of course, you know, weapons manufacturers through our defense budget. And uh, yeah, we're we are, however, always being scolded about scolded about the deficit and, uh, you know, how that's why we can't have nice things. And it just is such a, you know, it's outrageous. It's an outrageous system, right? It's set up. It's taxes are really difficult to pay. Why do we have to pay them Mm -hmm. ourselves at all? Why do we have to sit down with TurboTax or H&R Block or whoever to do something that government could do itself? Yes, it could do itself automatically. This is how it happens in so many other countries. Mm -hmm. But no, it's set up to try to you know, create traps for regular people to get audited, do something wrong and accidentally commit a felony. It extracts proportionally more from the poor than from the wealthy. And again, doesn't doesn't go toward any public good that most people feel in their lives. Yes. It's, uh, you know, even the post office constantly being undermined. So, yeah, a tax day, another opportunity. We could to, do a whole show just on the post office. For sure we could. Yeah. All the riding around on horses and stuff be like a Western. Yeah. No, I mean, it is just it is just a time to reflect on, you know, the tax system is set up deliberately. And what what kind of society is it set up to support? Yes. Because it doesn't seem to be one for, you know, regular people going to public schools, driving on roads, mailing their letters. We don't seem to be the ones who are designed to benefit from this system. That's right. Let's see. Uh, Let me get to I I had some other political stuff that I wanted to get into, but I do want to mention also um, the Interior Department today. So I guess Friday, Friday, the intention to do this was announced. And then today, the Interior Department gave us the specifics. Uh, It's going to release a sale notice for leases to drill on 144,000 acres of uh, public land in nine states. Well, tell me something. How does this Biden administration decision differ from the the decisions made on the same issue by the Trump administration. Right. Well, this time, John, he's doing it for our 
well-being an hour. Oh, out, it's I our good it. to bring down gas prices. Right, so that's okay. why that is why it's different. Also, it's different if you listen, if you do a thing, but you sort of publicly waved your hands around and said, oh, we really prefer not to do this thing. Then it, it it's totally different. Right. If you do it with enthusiasm versus doing it with uh, reluctance, yes. stained or otherwise, it's, right. a, it's a totally different ballgame. So, yes, the, the Biden administration uh, has has released for sale public land in nine states. Joe Biden, as I think you were alluding to, he, he campaigned on promises to end drilling on public land. Yeah, exactly. It's weird how that has changed. Uh, and when he came into office, he did temporarily stop the process via executive order. We talked about this on the show a lot. That order was challenged by a judge. You know, the, the Biden administration was sued by a bunch of Republican states, as yes. happens. Uh, a judge blocked the, the order temporarily, and the Biden administration said it was legally obligated to sell 80 million acres in the Gulf of Mexico, although quite a lot of um, environmentalists said you could have continued to fight like you are the head of the government. You, you know, there there were other avenues that you could have followed That's rather right. than just immediately yeah. lease the land. Yes. And so today's announcement is one far less land than was being considered for lease. Right. Eighty percent less than than they were looking at. And uh, it comes with far higher royalty rates. Of 18.75 percent. Okay. This is up from 12 and a half percent. According to the Times, that rate hadn't increased in 100 years and was quite a lot less than what companies pay to drill on state lands. Oh, so, my God. Yeah. Right. So that would seem to be good news to, to some extent. Right. It is less land than it could have been. And it is for more money. Um, but it also isn't necessarily going to have the impact that the administration, you would presume, is hoping for uh-huh. right right, right. Uh, all of these articles talk to industry experts who said it would take at least six months to a year before new drilling on federal land would produce any additional supply and therefore bring down the price of gas uh, the oil industry itself is not happy they are not happy about the rate increases they are saying this isn't really going to in- increase production and and push the price down it's just going to sort of kick this whole issue down the road yes and so like you know I, I don't care that you have industry uh, spokesmen and experts kind of griping. I, and I think that's what this is going to do, though. It, it really is just going to kick down the, the road. You know, what it sounds like to me is that the, the federal government didn't put a whole lot of thought into this. That there was a deal out there to be negotiated. Um, something akin to what the states have negotiated. And uh, they just were winging it. The feds. And they just took the deal that was that was offered or counter offered. I mean, they're already I think the oil industry is already mad about the strategic releases from the strategic reserves. But yes, this is exactly right. You know, as I, I was saying, I'm not you know, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for oil industry representatives saying we don't like this deal. Yeah. But also nobody likes it. Right. No. And so it seems sort of apropos for the Biden administration. It adheres to no principles. Right. It right. pleases no one. And it probably is not going to solve the real problem of high gas prices or the political problem of high gas prices. Yes. So you have environmentalists who are angry. You have the oil industry at least pretending to be angry. And it doesn't seem like it's going to do anything for it's certainly not going to do anything for the midterms. Yes. You know, then does Joe Biden stay in office another another year later? Okay, maybe presiding over. And then you have to ask, Okay, well, is this timing because actually Democrats don't like to be in power? 
because then you have some responsibility and you're supposed to do stuff. And wouldn't it be great for Joe Biden to preside over a a split Congress? Wouldn't that be so much better? the, The Republicans need to win only four House seats to take over control of the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. Just four. It's shocking to me. I read a funny article, and it wasn't meant to be funny, but it was funny to me, in Politico today, saying that um, Marjorie Taylor Greene's Democratic opponent, a guy named Marcus something, um, his fundraising in the first quarter of the year dwarfed her fundraising. He raised over $3 million. She raised $1.1 million. And although she has $3 million in the bank and he has something like $1.9 million, um, it's incredible because all this money is pouring in. Yeah, but none of those people live in that district. And at the very, very end of the article, it said that um, she won her last race 75-25. Yeah, 75-25. Yeah. Listen, this guy could spend a billion dollars for that seat, and he's not going to win. Well, this is what they try to do in Kentucky. That's exactly with Amy what McGrath, they try to right? do undercut, in Kentucky. Undercut uh, with Charles Booker? Was that, yeah, I think Charles Booker, exactly. Charles, Democrats undercut Charles Booker, who had momentum, who was really actually speaking to people, who had a yes. really, you know, unifying and message, like, had a strong no, no, economic no, no, no. message. No, we chose somebody let's else get, over here. Right. Let's get in national donations to right. a state race and ensure that, you know, you put up someone who like the, it, who it can't the sort of national November. Democratic image that they want, doesn't yes. speak to local people at all. Precisely. Yeah. It's a, what a strategy. Speaking of uh, Politico stories, uh, I know you <laughs> you saw this story uh, that it takes up most of Politico's front page online, or at least was this morning, um, about how the Russian ambassador to D.C. doesn't have anyone to talk to. <laughs> right. Lonely Anatoly. <laughs> no one wants to talk to Anatoly Antonov. And like. It's a goofy setup. And I, I started reading the story because I thought, is this really going to be another story about like how Alan Dershowitz can't get invited to parties on Martha's Vineyard anymore because he supports Trump or like the the plethora of stories uh, watching to see if Ivanka and Jared would continue to get invitations to right. hang out with a Manhattan and Miami hoi polloi. Um, but there is a little bit more to it than that. Uh, The story tells us Russia's ambassador to the United States can't get meetings with senior officials at the White House or the State Department. He can't convince U.S. lawmakers to see him. Uh, Think tankers aren't going to admit to have any contact with him. Uh, Also, supposedly, he uh, has been cut off from Russia as well. And Politico really hammers home this idea that Antonov has not spoken personally to Vladimir Putin in a long time. I don't know how often ambassadors are taking phone calls directly from the president. Seem like a little bit of a, a strange, you know, nit to pick here. Like being cut off personally from Putin is the same as not being in contact with the Kremlin. I'll tell you what, most ambassadors, and I know this for 100% fact, most ambassadors meet with the president once, maybe twice. It's when they present their credentials, in which case they have to meet with the president. And usually it's, you know, a dozen all at the same time. And then if you're from an important country, uh, when you're leaving at the end of your tour, you get a little handshake and a and a photo op with right. the president. Now, during Soviet times, Cold War times, yes, of course, the Soviet ambassador could drive to the White House and meet with Nixon or Johnson or Carter or whatever to defuse a situation. But to do an article today 
Yeah, in about 2022. how you're not in the you're not in the uh, the like WhatsApp group chat with yeah, Vladimir Putin exactly. on the daily. Yeah, it was it was silly. It's like, come on, people. it is funny. There's real news out there to write about. You're going to waste space writing about this silliness. Antonov, uh, you know, it was pressed on whether he's had a phone conversation with Putin, whether, you know, since becoming ambassador. And he finally said to give an opportunity to the FBI to listen to everything that he says to me. Come on. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty funny. But yeah, like, that's great. It's a whole story about sort of gloating about Antonov's wide open social calendar and the fact that yeah. the Russian embassy cook is being sent away. Right. But it does also if you if you read way into this article, uh, it does note that this guy, Antonov, he's been a negotiator on nuclear treaties like he helped negotiate the new start treaty oh yeah this is a serious guy he's a serious, he's a serious he's been around for a long time uh-huh. he has contacts across the government he, you know a couple of experts are quoted saying yeah he could be a reliable uh behind the scenes messenger right um but you know why of course oh, why why would you want to do that it just makes it it just you know it seems like weird mean girls politics right yes. it is sort of noting that it could damage someone's reputation in foreign policy circles to be seen as being in conversation with Antonov, given widespread bipartisan anger over Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine. Like, OK, but again, yes. we are, as he as he put it, and I doubt Antonov is the first person to, to use this phrase. But he said Russia and the U.S. are doomed to cooperate on various issues, right? On the pandemic, on inflation, on terrorism, on climate change. Right. And so it seems a little bit. It seems sort of silly and performative to just sort of ice someone out when you know you're going to have to you're going to have to come mm-hmm. back and talk to them. I don't know. It's it was interesting for me. I grew up in cities. And uh, and then as an adult, I moved to some I lived in some very, very small towns. And you do really learn, like if you live in a small town and nobody is going anywhere. Right. You live in yes. a village in the mountains of Laos or something. If you have a problem with your neighbor. You have to work out your problem with your neighbor or you have to just live in that problem with your neighbor forever. You can't just pick up and move to another neighborhood or make a new group of friends or like find a new family. You actually have to work things out. And it was it was a very interesting thing for me to learn and perhaps the biggest like culture shock. That if you have bad blood with somebody, you're still going to see them on the street every day. And it's sort of, you know, I don't want to make politics personal completely but this is a little bit late what do you think what do you think you're going to do you got to share the planet with these guys you might as well figure out how we can work together it doesn't mean condoning every country's every activity right. but ending conversation is silly and of course we haven't cut off diplomatic relations no but no which is the most important yes thing. yes of course all right we're going to come back and talk about more important things in just a second you're listening to political misfits on radio sputnik we're live in dc we'll be right back Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. In Ukraine, all eyes are on Mariupol, the city in southern Ukraine that's on the verge of surrender to Russian forces. The Russian government said over the weekend that if Ukrainian forces in Mariupol surrendered on Sunday, their lives would be spared. But there has been no response from the Ukrainian government other than a statement from Ukraine's foreign minister saying that for all intents and purposes, Mariupol no longer exists. 
The Russian Ministry of Defense also asserts that there are 400 European and Canadian mercenaries in the city. Meanwhile, Russian missiles struck the western Ukrainian city of Lviv over the weekend, and Russia broadcast a video of captured British mercenaries asking the Ukrainian government to exchange them for captured Ukrainian oligarch Viktor Medvedchuk. We're going to talk about this with Jim Jatras, former U.S. diplomat and former senior foreign policy advisor to the Senate Ukrainian leadership. Welcome back, Jim. Thank you, John. Actually, that's the Senate Republican. Right. <laughs> what did I say? Ukrainian leadership. <laughs> the Senate Ukrainian leadership. The Senate Republican oh, leadership. Jeez. <laughs> I have it on the brain. Sorry about that. The Senate Republican leadership. And you know, we go. I wrote Republican. Oh, I see it right there. I don't know why. Not going to say about it's that. Monday again. Okay, let's begin with Mariupol. This is a port city in the south. It's a very important city. It has a huge ethnic Greek population. It's the location of elements of the Azov Battalion. Um, and it would be the first Ukrainian city to actually fall to Russian forces if it surrenders. Tell us a little bit, Jim, about Mariupol and why it's so important. Is it because that it's a port? Well, it's partly because it's a port and it's located along the Sea of Azov, connecting Crimea to uh, the Donbass. So it's kind of a mm-hmm. link in the southern part of Ukraine, then leading further west toward uh, Nikolaev and then eventually to Odessa. So there's that. It's also because it was the base of the Azov Battalion. It's got a symbolic significance for the Ukrainians and also for the very strongly nationalistic and, if you know, pardon the expression, neo-Nazi elements. Yeah. On the Ukrainian side, and it's and it's let's, let's keep this in mind. It's a mostly pro-Russian city. You mentioned the Greek population there. Uh, it is, essentially has been a city under occupation for the last eight years. Mm-hmm. Nasty people, and I think we're going to see hear some real horror stories coming out of there. Now, it's not going to surrender. Uh, I think that's been made clear from the side of Kiev, or rather, their puppet masters in the West. So at this point, the fighters there are really giving, going to get a choice of surrender or death. And I'm afraid, unfortunately, most of them are not going to have had a chance to surrender because they've been told by their own leadership that they will be shot if they try to surrender. Oh, boy. So I think, I think nothing good is going to happen to them there. And then the question is, how many foreigners are there? Are they going to be captured alive? Are they going to be identified uh, after they're dead? You know, this is a massive uh, facility. And if it's bombed into submission, some of them may simply be entombed down there permanently. We'll never know who they were. Well, th- I think this is going to be a, a very big problem, this this issue of uh, of mercenaries. I think so many people, now we know at least 400 just in Mariupol, but there are so many people who have who have gone to Ukraine to quote unquote fight with no training, no understanding of the issues, no understanding of where they are, what they're supposed to do. Uh, anyway, that's just me riffing. So let me let me ask you this. The Ukrainian foreign minister, as I said in the introduction, says that Mariupol no longer exists. What exactly does that mean? I, I've seen the same videos of Mariupol that everybody else has. And it looks like it's, you know, been beaten up a little bit, but that it certainly exists. Is this hyperbole? What should we make out of this? It's a type of hyperbole. I think they're just writing it off. They're basically saying it's lost. 
to Ukraine, basically. And also, I think they're writing off the men that are still left there. And again, I think we have to look at this in the broader strategic picture, that one another reason why the Russians had to finish off the operation in Ukraine, and this is the only city they've stormed into. I mean, there are other cities like Kherson, for example, that are, are now under Russian control that fell basically peacefully. But they held out in Mariupol, and I think that the, the, the real next significance here is that this will free up tens of thousands of Russian forces that will now be redeployed for the main battle that is coming up now, what a lot of people are calling phase two, which is the largest part of the Ukrainian army that is now trapped in the Donbass, that will be similarly given a chance to either surrender or be annihilated. And we're talking about you know, maybe somewhere between 50 and 100,000 men at that point. So this is this is really the main event that's coming up in the near future. Jim, tell us a little bit about the role of these mercenaries. We've even heard reports of Americans going to Ukraine and fight. I remember just a few weeks ago, there there was a lot on, on YouTube and Rumble um, about people saying that that they had been encouraged, Americans saying they had been encouraged to go fight, and then they got there and they were just cannon fodder. Uh, what do you think we're going to end up seeing as we progress through this in terms of, of foreign fighters? Are there a lot of foreign fighters, a lot more than the 400 that we've been told about? It, you know, it's really hard to know. You'll recall that big strike against a uh, a basing area for these fighters near Lvov in western Ukraine several weeks ago that apparently killed dozens of these people. Right. I think dissuaded others from saying, you know what, maybe this is not such a good idea after all. So I don't think we really know how many of them there. I think they're primarily there for propaganda value to sort of feed the false narrative that, oh, Ukraine is really winning this war and the Russians are having trouble and let's go and, you know, fight the commies and all this kind of nonsense and, and, and sort of bolster the notion that this is some kind of great global crusade for democracy and human rights. Although some of these people, uh, you know, if you look at some of their political leanings are not exactly what you would call Democrat. No. So uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's kind of a, a bizarre phenomenon that really doesn't do much of anything militarily, but it sort of helps the narrative that, you know, there's somehow sure. volunteers like going to the Spanish Civil War or something like that. I could see that. What do you make of this video showing British mercenaries asking the Ukrainian government to trade them for Viktor Medvedchuk? Uh, can you can you see that actually happening? Happening? Medvedchuk may be a friend of Vladimir Putin's, but it seems to me that because he's a Ukrainian citizen and the head of a Ukrainian opposition party, that this is a Ukrainian, an internal Ukrainian issue. It is. And, uh, of course, uh, as I understand it, uh, Putin is the uh, godfather of Medvedev's right. daughter. And uh, so there's a close, uh, you know, friendship there, as I suppose. Uh, but you, as you say, Medvedev is, is a Ukrainian citizen. These foreign fighters, including these Brits, are not – the Russians do not consider them to be legitimate POWs under the Geneva Conventions. And right. I, I think that's a controversial interpretation. Frankly, maybe they're taking a leaf out of our book on the so-called, what is it, illegal combatants. Yeah. He treated as essentially pirates during the so-called war on terror. Uh, who were not afforded POW treatment, I, I'm not sure that's quite fair. Frankly, I think a lot of these guys are just saps, that they got drawn into something thinking they were going to fight you know, for mom and apple pie, and instead they're finding themselves in this in this dirty war. I, I'd like to think that Boris Johnson, especially with this whole party gate problem, uh, might find it worth his while to exchange uh, Medvedev for these guys. Um, but I don't know if that's going to happen. And, you know, it's in a way... 
I don't know what value these guys really have to the Brits or any other uh, leaders of their country of origin. Yeah, I have to agree. I, if, I, if I were Boris Johnson, I'd be angry that these idiots found their way over to, uh, to a war zone and threw themselves into it. Now they've caused a, a problem for their own government that's going to have to eventually negotiate their release or their exchange or, or something. It just seems like more trouble than it's, uh, than it's worth. Hey, I want to ask you about these reports we saw this morning um, that Russian forces struck the western Ukrainian city of Lviv or Lvov or however you say it with missiles. Um, President Zelensky said in the aftermath of this that there is no part of Ukraine that's safe from the Russians now. How important is a missile strike on this city? Why is why is the city important? Isn't this where? Uh, the NATO training was supposed to have been going on? Exactly. Uh, ah. Russian Lvov, Ukrainian Lviv, Polish Lvov, German Lemberg. Uh, yeah, the city has many names. This was the sort of the capital, if you will, of Austrian uh, Ukraine during the ah. one period. It is sort of the heart of Western Ukraine. It's the only part of Ukraine that's not really majority Orthodox. It's majority uh, Eastern Rite Catholic. And this is where the, most of the, of the really strong nationalist sentiment is based. So if the rest of the Ukrainian state crumbles, what's left of it would likely be centered around Lvov. So I think the fact that the Russians say we can strike anywhere there, including any of these staging areas in the far west, is exactly actually making the point that Zelensky is making, that there is really no place safe in Ukraine from the Russian forces should they choose to hit it. And that's where I really think this, this kind of nasty, ugly strategy of encouraging Ukraine to fight on, even though militarily, in gross terms militarily, they, they cannot win this war, is really literally fighting to the last Ukrainian and trying to make this as bloody and as dirty as possible for pure propaganda purposes against Russia and try to weaken Russia in a more global sense while making the Ukrainians pay the price for it. Let's talk a little bit about um, about how American politics plays into this, Jim. Senator Chris Coons, who is a, a Delaware Democrat and known to be the the closest friend of Joe Biden's in the U.S. Senate, uh, said on the Sunday morning talk shows that Vladimir Putin will only stop, quote, when we stop him. And the interviewers that he spoke with pressed him on this. Like, what do you mean when you say when we stop him? Are you saying that the United States has to send troops and that that Americans have to be physically involved in this fight. He was given repeated chances to back down and he wouldn't. So when pressed, he said that the U.S. should com- consider committing troops to the fight to prevent Ukraine from his words turning into Syria. This is, of course, a red line for the Russians. It would be a violation of international law. It couldn't be done without the approval or at least the acquiescence of NATO. The president would have to uh, actually ask Congress to commit the troops. There would have to be a congressional vote. What are your thoughts? This is this is a pretty bold uh, declaration and um, and would put us right into the very middle of this war. Well, there are several things here, John, is that, first off, where's Lauren Witzke when we need her? And Chris Coons wouldn't be there. I think there's something in the water out there. Yeah. 
You look at Coons and, and then Biden. I remember that. I have to disagree with you. We'd have to go through all this stuff constitutionally. I, that presumes we still have a constitution. Oh, good point. No, that the executive leadership will do whatever the hell they want without any congressional approval. And if they do go to Congress, it'd only be there to have them rubber stamp whatever it is the executive wants to do anyway. And let's face it, it's not just Chris Coons. I think most of the Republicans in Congress are pretty much on the same side. Well, that was my next question, actually. Yeah. Do, do you believe that that uh, there are Republicans on this side, too? Because it seems to me that that Donald Trump was at least over the course of four years pulling Republicans away from that that pro-war stance that uh, that they had had for the last half century. Well, I think this is another one of those cases where uh, the bulk of Republican voters are probably closer to Trump populism, if you want to call it that, than to the neocon orthodoxy, right. the Republican establishment. And I saw a piece recently with a headline saying it's still John McCain's party. Right, right. And and, and, I, and sadly, that is true. And I and I think what's you know, here's the really scary thing about this, John, is uh, I've been saying for about a week now, I think we're crossing over about the 50 percent threshold on probability that this does become a direct Russia-NATO conflict. And that should be scaring the pants off of everybody. Oh, my. That is something that could turn into a nuclear confrontation. These people think they're still dealing with Serb- Serbia or Syria or Iraq. You know, you know, Kuhn says he doesn't want this turned to another Syria. What does that mean exactly? To destroy the country, which is essentially what the Biden administration is doing? Or does it mean that the Russians and their allies win the war, as they have essentially done in Syria and as they will do in Ukraine? And the question is, how much are they going to risk war in Europe and maybe a war that directly threatens the survival of the American people over winning a war in Ukraine that they cannot win. Yeah. Are you hearing anything else uh, in your time on Capitol Hill uh, these days about about Democrats increasingly supporting Coons's position? Because it seems to me that that if this is starting on the Capitol Hill side rather than from inside the White House, it might be even more dangerous. Because, it, it, again, it seems to me that, that the Congress ought to be the stop on a bad policy like this. It shouldn't be originating in Congress and then going to the White House. Well, I guess I guess my question there would be who in Congress, whom do you see on the either? You know, certainly I don't see many people on the left. I mean, I'm no. old enough to remember in the first Cold War when there was a strong anti-war movement on the left. That doesn't seem to exist. No, I agree. That is. This notion that, you know, basically our idea of the West and human rights and democracy is so left now, so woke, that these people are really thinking this is a war for whatever values it is that they endorse. And uh, and, I, and I just don't see where that resistance is going to come from. Maybe a few people on the populist right will uh, oppose it. I don't even see anybody on the hard left anymore who really oppose yeah, it. I agree. I agree. And I actually look for stuff like that. And I'm just not seeing it. I'm not seeing anybody emerging as sort of the leader of the Democratic anti-war movement. No, 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 no. Kind of an oxymoron, really. Yeah, that's right. Jim, uh, one last question for you. And and I apologize if this sounds like it's out of left field, but Turkish troops this morning began a new ground and air offensive in Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, they're they're targeting camps and ammunition stores of the of the PKK. That's the Iraqi Kurdistan. I'm sorry, the uh, Kurdistan Workers Party. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I honestly thought that the war between the Turks and the PKK was either over or winding down. I was wrong. Um, this fight began in 1984, at least 40,000 people. It, it's probably three or four times that have been killed, most of them civilians. What's happening there? Why would the Turks cross that border again and start killing Kurds? I think the short answer is because they feel they can. I mean, right now, and I think this is part of what we're going to be seeing as this thing becomes a kind of a slow burn global confrontation between, you might say, Eurasia and sort of the global Atlanticist empire based in Washington, is that other actors, and you know, let's think about China and Taiwan, let's think about other places, other actors will say, you know what, the Americans, the Russians, the rest of them, they're all busy with other stuff. We have other business to settle. This is a good time. Time to do it because who's going to really have time to focus on this? You know, the Iraqis, you know, the, the Iraqi government is very close to the Iranians. They've got good relations with the Russians, but there's also an American presence there. If I were the Turks, I would say, yeah, hey, this is a good time to hit the PKK. Who's going to do anything about it? And you know what? Nobody's going to do anything about it. Nobody's ever done anything about it. No. Yep. And I expect that we're going to see slippage in other places. I think there's a lot of uh, potential for uh, instability in the Balkans. Uh, there are other places we haven't even thought about. I think we'll see heating up again over the next few weeks and months because people figure it's a good time. Jim, one last issue. Um, this is something that uh, that Michelle flagged for me this morning. There was a piece over the weekend <laughs> It sounds kind of silly, but complaining that we're sending so many uh, weapons and systems to um, Ukraine that uh, we can't replace them on the shelf for ourselves, that we're running short of weapons. It sounds preposterous to me, but you know so much more about these issues than I do. Is it possible that we could run out of some weapons or systems or ammunition because we're giving too much to the Ukrainians? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at wow. people who are much more military specialists than I am, like like Scott Ritter and Douglas uh, McGregor, sure. other people that are actually calling things the way they are uh, and are taking seriously the prospect that we could get into a, a direct confrontation between NATO and Russia. Let's keep in mind, only a small percentage of Russia's forces are engaged in Ukraine right now. They're holding most of their forces and reserves over the possibility that they do end up in a war with NATO. And NATO is simply not equipped for, the, for that war even now before even stripping down stocks to, to, to throw them into Ukraine where they'll be destroyed by the Russians anyway. The stupidity of this risk is beyond belief. Wow. We will leave it there. That was the voice of Jim Jatras. Jim's a former U.S. diplomat and former senior foreign policy advisor to the Senate Republican leadership. Not the Ukrainian leadership, right. but the Republican <laughs> leadership. Anymore, John. <laughs> Jim, thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We're going to take a short break and come back with our next guest. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou. 
talking about, you know, a lot of there was a lot of uh, pontificating on the conjunction this year of uh, the holy month of Ramadan. Oh, yeah. Passover and Easter. First time in 33 years. They all coincided. They were all they all sort of coincided over this weekend. And of course, that set the stage for more violence in Jerusalem and particularly in and around the Al-Aqsa Mosque. We are going to talk about the role that religion does play in that violence, but also what we what we tend to ignore uh, when something like this happens. And you can go, oh, well, this is a this is a religious conflict. There's nothing that can be done about it. It's not rational. I think there is a lot more to it than that. Joining us for this conversation is Ariel Gold. She's co-executive director of Code Pink. Ariel, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me on. So, of course, we heard a lot this weekend about, quote unquote, clashes in and around Al-Aqsa with dozens of people left wounded after a weekend of violence. And I was hoping you could start off by contextualizing these clashes for us and, and talking to us about what has been happening in Jerusalem and what uh, what happened over the weekend. Sure. Well, first of all, first of all, I just want to begin by saying that they were not clashes. Mm-hmm. Right. In the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, this was a raid by Israeli occupation forces. Um, a raid targeting Palestinian worshipers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we have to go back a little bit and take note that um, since, uh, you know, the, what the Western, or sorry, the mainstream media, what they've been focused on recently um, have been the, um, have been the, uh, have been the Israelis who have been killed. There have been 14 killed attacks inside Israel. But what they're not discussing is the tens of Palestinians um, who have been shot and killed this month since Ramadan began on April 2nd by Israeli forces who are conducting night raids across the West Bank, which is collective punishment, and the hundreds, the many hundreds who have been arrested. Israeli forces have also been shooting live ammunition um, at protesters. Uh, this this last Wednesday, a four, uh, 14-year-old uh, teenager was killed as Israeli forces used live ammunition against protesters in his village outside of Bethlehem. We also had, you know, this horrific, horrific killing of um, a 47-year-old mother of six, a widow who is blind in one eye, entirely unarmed, shot in the leg and left to bleed to death as she approached the uh, checkpoint that had been erected at the entrance to her village outside of Bethlehem. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's you could you know, you could talk about some killings like this every single day. Right. And of course, that is the stage uh, upon which this sort of ritual reenactment of violence, it seems like every year around this time um, unfolds. And that's why I wanted to talk about, you know, Especially when something happens like this, like you have Ramadan, Passover and Easter all sort of uh, coinciding. And it it seems like it creates an opportunity for people to talk about this uh, ongoing conflict as though it is purely religious. Right. And Muslims and Jews simply can't coexist together. And so why even try? And so I wanted to ask you, you know, obviously religion plays an important role here. And, uh, you know, uh, holy sites play a role. Uh, but that is not the entire factor here, right? There are a lot of, there are national issues at play. There's territorial issues at play, of course. And so I wanted to ask you about that because in a way it seems like this, it provides a little bit of cover for everyone to throw up their hands and go, see, it's a religious issue. You can't, you can't, uh, you can't uh, reason with people. 
Certainly. And, and this is not a religious conflict. Right. It's a conflict about land theft and military occupation and apartheid. Um, I myself am Jewish and, and fairly religious, and I was thrilled. I have um, some, we have some interfaith members in our family, and I was thrilled to have Passover fall at the same time as Easter, and as this, at the same time that my you know friends and colleagues are observing Ramadan. Um, but Israel really, you know, they set the stage for this. So um, we see these acts of, of repression during Ramadan year after year. Uh, we see the raiding of Al-Aqsa Mosque, closing of gathering spaces, uh, at, such as the uh, such as um, at the entrance to the old city, and you know as well. And this is an annual thing. Israel puts the entire West Bank on lockdown during the Passover holiday. Now, for anybody who's not familiar with the Passover holiday, Passover is. Um, one of the major Jewish holidays, and the theme of it is a celebration of um, freedom and liberation. And the the concept, the realization, and the commitment that no uh, that no one is free unless we all are free, and that as we as Jews celebrate our our you know holiday dedicated to us being liberated from bondage in Egypt, we commit ourselves to work for the liberation of all people, and especially um, Palestinians living under Israeli military control. I wanted to ask also, I mean, of course, last year, um, what we saw after, again, violence around Al-Aqsa, attacks uh, on worshippers there, was a full-on Israeli assault of Gaza that lasted 11 days. And, you know, we spoke about the deliberate targeting of news organizations, indiscriminate killing of civilians. Uh, did you see anything this weekend that makes me that makes you think we will not see a repeat of that? Well, it is, it, certainly Israel is playing with fire with this. We mm-hmm. did hear um, both Hamas and Islamic Jihad threaten uh, to, um, as they call it, protect Al-Aqsa. Um, and, you know, tensions are rising and escalating rapidly. And Israel began the Ramadan holiday by saying that they were going to de-escalate, that things had been rising mm-hmm. um, and that they were seeking to de-escalate things. But they're behaving in the exact opposite way. And it's a very dangerous situation. Um, and we, we really need a de-escalation. Uh, there, there's no reason for Israeli forces to raid Al-Aqsa Mosque. If Palestinian youth are throwing rocks, leave the mosque compound. The Israeli soldiers don't belong in the mosque compound in the first place. Mm-hmm. I want to ask how much of a role, what, what is the role, do you think, of uh, the far the not political, right, sort of religious far right in Israel, because, of course, there were reports of, um, you know, attempts to make a a Passover sacrifice at the at the uh, at Al-Aqsa. I I just sort of wonder if if these are thorns in the side of the Israeli government or if you think uh, people like, you know, the the most um, fervent settlers say, or if they are playing a function for this government that the government, you know, doesn't want to take complete ownership of? Well, let's not forget that Prime Minister Naftali Bennett is a strong, strong, avid supporter of the settlements. He has called for the annexation of the entire West Bank. 
And so, you know, when we talk about these extreme forces, this is a part of Israeli society. This is part of the coalition. This is part of the, the, the makeup of the government. And it's also a force that's rising um, in Israeli society and rising more and more. And um, in recent years is being led really by youth. It's an incredibly, incredibly dangerous movement. They played a large role in last year's um, escalation that led to war. And it's up to um, Israeli, the Israeli government to keep them in check. They did arrest uh, the extremists who were planning to sacrifice a goat at Al-Aqsa. Few and far between who they arrest. And Israeli settlers, the far right, know that they can act with impunity and that frequently um, the soldiers who are in the West Bank are are um, under their command. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So talk about what this could mean for Israel's government, because over the weekend, the Arab-Israeli party Ram suspended its membership in the ruling coalition and yesterday said if the government continues its steps against the people of Jerusalem, we will resign as a bloc. And my understanding is if they leave that coalition, uh the government loses its mandate. They're going to have to have new elections. What do you do you think Rom really intends to resign? Uh, and then if it does, what would the possibility of more elections mean for Israel? Well, I should begin by saying that I'm not a fan of the Rom party. Mm-hmm. They're um, extremely uh, homophobic and LGBTQ plus, which is what caused was part of what caused their split from the joint list. Um, and, you know, we should take this with a grain of salt because the call to Rom in response to the violence was actually to resign from the coalition. But Rom, working with Naftali Bennett, decided not to and instead uh, just to freeze their membership. And it's really being seen by the coalition and, you know, by politics there as more of a symbolic move anything else. And we can also talk about if it does go to elections, because this is a very fragile government and it could easily go to elections. And uh, Bennett was already is, has already lost his uh, majority. No, there's uh, there, there's no coalition that could be formed that would be any better than Bennett. And uh, it's hard to get one, one that's much worse. Right. This is, you know, kind of par for the course. We could certainly get uh, Benjamin Netanyahu back and it wouldn't be I mean, th- than things are today. <laughs> the possibility of Netanyahu coming back. <laughs> could he actually could he actually come back in the midst of his uh, the, given his current legal status and his current legal battles? I never count him out. <laughs> and that's ex- that's exactly what we hear from. Our other guests who who cover these Israeli political issues, mm-hmm. you can never count this guy out. I mean, that would be just uh, incredible. And also sort of more more of the same. I mean, when you say like it couldn't really get any better and it also can't really get much worse. I mean, that is a it is funny. It is also a sad state of affairs. I also wanted to ask, you know, there was some um, hubbub over Kamala Harris and uh, the first gentleman's choice of wine for their Seder. They were serving wine that came from Israeli wine uh, that came from the West Bank. They got some criticism for that. And I, I wanted to ask just in general, you know, I mean, the, the Harris responded saying, oh, it's, this is not a, a policy choice. You know, we just picked this wine out. But I wanted to ask how responsible Americans should feel about uh, these, you know, constant attacks on Palestinians in Jerusalem and sort of the long, slow grind of, of displacement and dispossession. Uh, how, how much, uh, you know, of our the, the record tax revenues that we collected uh, in the past couple of months are, are going towards supporting the situation? Well, I want to begin 
Biden by saying that, of course, it's an expression of policy, <laughs> ridiculous thing to say. And it's the policy of disregard and stupidity, though not, you know, though maybe not intended or not intended to endorse the settlement wine. It is a policy of disregard for Palestinian rights. And that has been longstanding. And, you know, what is Say for a minute that the Pescat uh, Winery, where this wine is from, uh, it's located outside of Ramallah, and it's on stolen Palestinian land that the Palestinian owners have the legal deeds to. Winery and the um, corresponding settlement. It's also uh, the winery. There is a far, far right, very um, avid settler who is a big fan of Benjamin Netanyahu. One and Donald Trump and named a wine after settlement advocate um, and former U.S. ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, who, in response to uh, the the uh, vice president's choice of wine to serve, uh, you know, responded by saying next year, serve the vintage Friedman wine from Pescott. So it certainly does send a message and it sends a message of disregard for Palestinian Americans and disregard for international law. Mm -hmm. I also wonder, Ariel, if you can give us any update on, you know, speaking of Gaza and the assault last year on the, you know, the state of life in in the Gaza Strip, because, of course, I I mean, I personally have been for years writing about, you know, different U.N. reports saying that Gaza Gaza will be unlivable in a couple of years, that there will be, you know, only a fraction of the potable water that exists today, which, of course, is not enough for the population. Uh, Electricity, you know, there's there's no hope of ending the constant rolling blackouts because of uh, constant fuel shortages that are, of course, created by Israel's blockade. And, you know, what with a, a lot of attention being focused on uh, the war in Ukraine and on uh, Joe Biden's domestic agenda, we really haven't heard very much of, you know, how much Gaza has been able to rebuild over the past year and what life is like for people there. And I wondered if you if you had any update for us. Well, essentially, Gaza has not been able to rebuild. And Gaza is and was already before last year unlivable. You talked about the fraction of potted water. That's exactly the case that's going on there right now. And this is a situation that is that is, um, you know, untenable and it must change. And, you know, we're seeing it, it's a real case of desperation with the unemployment rate, um, post stress disorders in children due to the repeated Israeli bombing assaults. And like you said, um, the majority of the water is unfit for human consumption. Ariel, I've got a political question for you. This uh, this coalition, this uh, governing coalition, this was an odd grouping of political parties from the very beginning. Everybody marveled over it. And we all knew from the beginning it wasn't going to be terribly stable. So now that uh, at least one of the Arab parties is dropping out, of course, there's a there's a possibility that they might that they might rejoin sometime in the next three weeks while the Knesset is out of session. Yeah, I tend to think they're not actually dropping out, I have to say. Oh, OK. That was actually the question that I had for you. Do you see them using this as a negotiating ploy to reenter with perhaps a stronger uh, uh, position? And do you see these kinds of coalitions uh, working in the future? I don't see these this type of coalition working now. Uh-huh. 
anything at any time. And uh, I, I don't see them even gaining anything necessarily from uh, what's been done. I think they really um, compromised the Palestinian struggle by joining the coalition in the first place. And like I said before, they have not dising- they, they didn't drop out of the coalition. Uh, they froze their membership in agreement with Naftali Bennett, which is being seen um, in Israel as more symbolic than anything else. Uh-huh. Why do you think that there's, you know, no possibility for movement, I suppose, on, on an Israeli left right right now? Is it where, politically, where where does that stand? Well, it's a pretty sad situation as well. The Israeli left has been declining um, for decades now, as the Israeli right has been uh, rising and gaining more and more power. And, you know, some parts of it, I would say, would be uh, holding on to the concept of Zionism and the false um the false belief that there can be such thing as a Jewish and democratic state and you know this is a realization that needs to come that um throughout the land of Israel and Palestine from the river to the sea all people have to have full and equal rights yeah and it's hard to maintain a it's hard to maintain an ethnic majority in a theocracy by means that people will find acceptable over time. And, you know, one of the things, too, that's always been very interesting to me is the way that Benjamin Netanyahu was able to drag so many American Jews to the political right with him. And, yeah, I remember when, when I first applied at the CIA uh, as part of my application, um, they gave me a test where they gave me a, a file folder of unclassified um, newspaper articles about Benjamin Netanyahu, and they asked me to write a one-page biography about him. And, I mean, this was in 1988 or 89. He was going places back then. He was so unapologetically conservative, yet American at the same time, speaks English with, with an American accent, raised in the United States. And I think that over the course of decades, he was able to drag the entire American Jewish movement to the political right. And many of them didn't even realize it at the time. Ariel, as our uh, American political Jew on the left here, I would really like to give you an opportunity to respond to John, but we don't have any more time. Oh, that was sorry. Ariel Gold. We'll, we'll, we'll get back to this topic again very soon. You can find more of her work and Code Pink's work at codepink.org. Ariel Gold, thank you so much for joining us. Thank me. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and we are waiting to bring on our next guest. And so, John, I wanted to talk to you about another story over the weekend that um, we probably shouldn't ignore, and that is what Afghanistan says are airstrikes on its territory by Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Afghan officials say the strikes killed 47 people, 41 of them civilians, including women and children. I think they say uh, there were 22 more injured. And I have not seen that Pakistan has confirmed the strikes, but it did say cross-border attacks on its personnel from militants hiding in Afghanistan had increased, and it warned the Taliban government against tolerating that kind of activity for, for much longer. Right. There are two different 
Taliban organizations. The Afghan Taliban and the Pakistani Taliban. The Pakistani Taliban are far more radical than the Afghan And they are Taliban. the ones who are hiding out over the border in Afghanistan, according to Pakistan, Correct. and launching attacks from Afghanistan on its personnel. That's right. They started in northern Pakistan in something called the Swat Valley. And then when the Pakistani military routed them, they went across the border into um, into the area just east of, well, east of Jalalabad, but between Jalalabad and, and Peshawar in um, northeastern Afghanistan, northwestern uh, Pakistan. Uh, the Pakistani military is not going to sit quietly while these guys uh, arm and build up their strength. But so honestly, also, what is what do you what are they asking Afghanistan to do? You know, the Taliban government that is uh, See, a country that is really incredibly poor. Yeah. You know, the United what States. What could they do? I mean, there's really nothing that they, Unless, they We used to joke all the time that Hamid Karzai was was really nothing more than the mayor of Kabul. Well, the the Taliban aren't so much more powerful. They They certainly control the country, but. I mean, they they can't even afford food and water, let alone to be able to to manage the security of the border. Yeah, I think that is a good point. They are much more in control of the the rest of the country right outside of the capital. And so maybe you could expect them to exert some more influence. But yeah, not if it means paying out people who might perhaps be doing them some favors. Right. For the uh, for the accommodations. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Well, our guest is with us. So I'm going to start there. Privacy and free speech have been in the news a great deal over the past several months, and there have been some major developments over the past few days. Elon Musk, we told our listeners on Friday, the richest man in the world, last week purchased 9.2% of Twitter. And he said he wanted a seat on the board, then he changed his mind and said he didn't want a seat on the board, then he made a $43 billion all-cash offer for the company. Not only was it rejected, uh, but the Twitter board said that it would take a poison pill and flood the uh, the market with cheap shares if Musk purchased more than 15%. They don't want him having more than 15% of the, of the company. Uh, we're going to talk about that. This morning, Alex Jones's InfoWars filed for bankruptcy protection. Jones, of course, is known as a major conspiracy theorist, and what appears to have done him in was his refusal to respond to court orders related to a civil suit against him for denying the Sandy Hook massacre and encouraging others to harass Sandy Hook parents. Jones essentially just refused to show up for depositions or for court hearings. His endorsement of conspiracies cost him his children in a custody hearing a year ago. And then in other news, Michael Sussman, the attorney for the 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign, who has been accused of lying to the FBI and will soon go on trial for it, was in the news again over the weekend. Special counsel John Durham said on Friday afternoon that Sussman's allegation that the CIA had data tying Donald Trump and his 2016 transition team to Russia, quote, was not technically plausible, unquote. He just made it up is what he did. Sussman's motion to dismiss the case also was rejected on Friday afternoon, and he'll go to trial next month, unless, of course, he agrees to a plea deal in the interim. We're joined by journalist and writer Daniel Lazar. We have a lot of questions. Dan, welcome back. Uh, Thanks for having me. Dan, let's begin with uh, Elon Musk. I'm trying to figure out exactly what his long-term strategy is here. Let's try to walk through this step-by-step. Musk calls himself a free speech absolutist. That's not true, of course. He's known for coming down hard on whistleblowers at Tesla and SpaceX, his two companies, 
Uh, but he loves to tweet, and it's even gotten him into trouble with the SEC a couple of times. He bought 9.2% of Twitter. He said he wanted to be on the board. Then he changed his mind. Then a few days later, he said he would buy Twitter for $43 billion in cash. Many would argue that that would be a bad investment, that Twitter is just, they haven't really perfected their, their ability to make money. Um, why, why is Musk doing this? What does he hope to gain by doing all this? Well, I think that Musk is a, um, I mean, I mean, first of all, Musk reminds me of someone from my junior high school. I mean, this is, is his sense of humor is just perfect. I mean, a, a few days ago, he, 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 he tweeted out uh, to followers a proposal to drop the W from Twitter, you know, so <laughs> I mean, that, that, would have had, that would have had me and my friends in the eighth grade, you know, rolling in the aisles. Um, you know, so that's the kind of personality he seems to be. But, but I think it's worth bearing in mind that there, there really is a very strong Democratic Party uh, censorship m- machine out there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, mean yeah. I regard that, I mean, I mean, I regard that, you know, uh, Musk's joke about dropping the W was just something just completely silly and but inconsequential. Yeah, but there but there are people who take this. There's people in the Democratic Party who take this very seriously, and somehow they see this as the opening wedge to turning Twitter into some kind of I don't know what sort of arm of Russian propaganda slash uh, slash um, Alex Jones slash I don't know what. And they are they are they are terrified of someone like Musk with his, you know, kind of his adolescent bravado taking over that that machine. Um, And and so this is turning to a real a real epic battle uh, over the control of not only Twitter, but the control of actually the whole kind of like, you know, social media and social media free speech. Uh, So so therefore, you know, I, I, I don't support Musk, I think he's really an idiot in a thousand, thousand different ways. But I do think that he has got a certain validity to his argument that I can't that, that I can't help feeling sympathetic to because this, this censorship machine is really out of control and it's serving narrower and narrower political purposes. I, I told a little vignette last week about when my oldest sons were little, six and eight, six and nine, whatever they were, they were obsessed with, uh, with studio wrestling, fake wrestling. And so I took them to Madison Square Garden to see this WWE fake wrestling. And, you know, there are guys up there in the, in the ring and they're smashing chairs over each other's backs and throwing each other onto tables outside the ring. And I said to my older son, so which one is the good guy? And he said, there are no good guys. That's what makes it so fun. And that's the situation that I think we're seeing here. Musk isn't the good guy. Musk isn't the guy who's going to rescue us from, from these affronts against our freedom of speech. You know, I, I met Elon Musk one time in in 2008. Um, he was with a friend of a friend. We got together for drinks. It was just four of us. And we sat uh, in this bar off the record that's in the Hay Adams Hotel in the basement. 
sat there for hours and he he talked about his vision for SpaceX, which he had actually hadn't created yet. But he had come to to have drinks with us from dinner at the White House where where he was with a bunch of wealthy Jewish Americans, Jewish Democrats. He had raised like two million dollars for Barack Obama. And then the next thing you know, he's not a Democrat. He's an outcast of the Democratic Party. He's raising money for the Republicans. He's moving his corporate headquarters to Texas because he can't stand the liberals in Southern California. What what's up with this guy? Who is he? What does he stand for? I don't understand this at all. Well, I don't think he stands for much except for for adolescent rebellion. But but we've all been adolescent rebels. Sure. At least I have been. I have been. And um, and I must say that this this Democratic Party establishment is is so suffocating. I mean, it's really it's getting much worse thanks to the uh, the war in the Ukraine. Isn't that the um, truth? That, you know, and and so therefore, you know, how can one not, you know, feel a twinge of sympathy for the adolescent rebel, you know, who wants to just, you know, make any kind of gesture, however dumb, you know, and you know, in the face of this really, this really, this um, this incredibly narrow-minded and morally you know, uh, uh, self, you know, self preening, uh, you know, democratic party establishment and that, and they've got control of Twitter. They want to keep control of it. They want to keep control of all social media. Yeah. And, uh, and, 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 and Musk is, uh, you know, is, is mounting a campaign against it. And, and of course the media in general loves it because it's a great show, but yeah. no, but there really is, there is. really is something meaningful there. I think. Tell us a little bit about this this poison pill. How how would a company like Twitter survive flooding the market with cheap shares, taking on billions and billions of dollars in debt just to make sure that Elon Musk can't afford to buy them? How do they survive that? Well, they often don't survive, right? Right. I mean, often the effect is to uh, is to load them down with so much debt as to as to render them essentially uneconomic and 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 they. And a, and, a, and a company who's actually whose profits, which is not very profitable, no. uh, profit levels are actually fairly low, surprisingly low. Um, I mean, it could really be kind of a, an act of self-immolation. Um, so, you know, so, so Twitter may be, you know, maybe committing suicide to prevent uh, as the ultimate defense against Elon Musk. Uh, I don't know if, it'll, if they'll get away with it. I don't know how far it'll go. We've seen these epic battles, you know, you know unwind before. So you know, so maybe it'll lead to the you know to the self destruction of of Twitter, the breakup of Twitter, the something new rising from the ashes. I don't know, but it seems to me that the uh, that the company really is uh, in danger of self destruction. Yeah, I agree. Hey, so many new social media platforms are popping up right now. Uh, most of them right wing, uh, all promising freedom of speech. If that's what Elon Musk is really so interested in. Why not just buy one of those? Why not buy Rumble or Parler? Why not create one of his own? For example, what's the big deal for him about Twitter? Well, just a Twitter is now a brand name. I mean, Twitter is a is a is a, a, a name with universal recognition and, and that has value. So yeah. yeah, you know, so Rumble Rumble is gaining reputation. Yeah, that's that that that's true. 
but uh, but but Twitter, you know, Twitter is the big name. It's the it's the the noun slash verb that everybody knows. Yeah. And yeah. so therefore, therefore, it carries enormous cachet. Uh, and the, the and the media plays very pays very close attention to it, so so that has value, and it's that it's that value that Musk is trying to capture, uh, and you know, but but that but that value is evanescent. It really could fade very rapidly. Yes. So uh, so so you know so maybe when it comes down to it, you, you know, you may be onto something. Maybe maybe Musk will grab onto some kind of alternate alternate platform. And uses financial resources to build to build that up in competition with Twitter. It's kind of you know, more or less the same thing, really, isn't it? Yeah, maybe maybe he forces Twitter to take the poison pill. He drives them into bankruptcy and then buys Rumble or Parler. That would make more sense to me. Hey, let's talk about Infowars. Uh, Infowars, of course, declared bankruptcy this morning. I think everybody in America saw that coming. Alex Jones's financial demise was of its own making. His wife left him last year. She fought successfully for custody of their children. And in the course of that custody fight, Jones said in court that InfoWars was entertainment. It was not news. And that he just made up all of these conspiracies. Uh, That did not make the Sandy Hook parents feel any better, though. They sued Jones because he perpetrated that lie that the Sandy Hook massacre was a so-called false flag operation, that no children were killed there, that everybody involved was a crisis actor, that they had uh, gotten their jobs as crisis actors by answering advertisements on Craigslist. His supporters harassed Sandy, Sandy Hook parents, and then they sued. He didn't bother to go to court to defend himself. He didn't show up at the depositions. Is it even possible to come back to this? I mean, there's always there's already been trouble inside Infowars and, you know, half the the talent is gone. The, the, the staff is gone. How does he come back from this? You know, I, I have a real sense of this. You know, this, these are the last days in the in the bunker. I mean, uh, I mean, Jones <laughs> is just like, you know, a, a bizarre character. Uh, he really is something close to a fascist. I must I must say that. And that's a and that's a greatly overused word. But in his case, I think it really is. Uh, it really applies. Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, the Sandy Hook, 26 people killed, 20 of them aged, aged six or seven. And the, and the parents after that, after that, that unbelievable tragedy are then find themselves harassed yeah. by, by, you know, by hundreds of Alex Jones followers. I mean, I mean, what a moral out, moral outrage. Um, you know, but but this guy, he he lies freely. I, my sense is he's got a very vague sense of the difference between fact and fiction, um, and uh, uh, he's really outrageous. He, I, I think I think two wives have left him, you know, oh with the, w- with their children in tow, um, and uh, and you know, and the, and Infowars is you know is emptying out, it's turning into a shell. So I really do have the sense of you know the final days in the bunker, and this guy is on a a self-destructive kick where the the absurdity of his position will wind up just doing him in it. And, and it really couldn't happen to a nicer guy. I mean, this, this, this guy is really an outrage. That Sandy Hook thing was just monstrous, unforgivable, uh, a complete affront to all things decent in this world. I, I have uh, to agree. And it's amazing. We, we hear so much about, you know, mockingly, of course, that He's he's said that 
uh, NASA has established a colony on Mars and that we're we're sending pedophiles there and the pedophiles are going to make this new society, a new pedophilia society on Mars. I mean, he goes into real detail <laughs> over this craziness. But at InfoWars over the last year, they've been, they've been involved in something of a civil war over there. The network has essentially split up. Some of the more popular co-hosts have gone out on their own. They went to they went to Rumble or they went to YouTube. They just abandoned Jones as soon as as soon as the Dookie hit the fan on on his uh, on his uh, custody issue. They just abandoned him. And um, the New York Times, uh, I think it was actually the New York Times magazine, uh, wrote a long expose about this young kid in his 20s who got his first job out of college at InfoWars and how nuts this place was. It was just nuts. And he said his parents tried to warn him, his friends tried to warn him, but that Jones is actually nuts. And uh, his conclusion was, just in the last year, there's no way this network can survive. I, I think you're right. I think that's what we've come to. I mean, I, I wouldn't mind so much if it was if it was pedophiles on Mars. You know, I mean, that's <laughs> kind of that, that's kind of just kind of fun, but funny. That's sort of but, National Enquirer. Yeah, you know, good yeah, times. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right. That, that housewife in New Hampshire being kidnapped by aliens. Right. Have you know subject to repeated alien sex? I mean, that's kind of funny, goofy stuff. Uh, but, you know, but when you're involved in the Sandy Hook harassment or you're involved in, uh, you know, in the in the, the January 6th, 2021 coup d'etat. Right. I mean, that's serious stuff. I've also seen footage of, of, of a chance encounter between Alex Jones and Bernie Sanders uh, at an airport. Yes, in an and, airport. And it, was, and it was really scary stuff. Oh, you I have mean, to really see the was. funny one, the funny one between Alex Jones and Marco Rubio, where Rubio is just cracking up through the whole thing. And he keeps saying, who, who is this guy? Alex, who? Alex, what? It was hilarious. <laughs> but you're right. The one with Bernie Sanders is is frightening. Yeah, but he but he really he really is visibly insane. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, I'm Sanders at the look of a guy who's being followed by a crazy man yes. screaming, screaming at him, you know, and then all the other people in the uh, in the terminal are looking at this at Jones in a scans, you know, wondering who this complete and obvious nut is. Uh, but, you know, but it's a it's just, you know, but the guy is really, I think on the edge of the precipice about to plunge over. So maybe we're wa- watching the, the final days in the bunker, the final days of Alex Jones where he, and we're just watching his complete and utter self-destruction. I mean, that's probably not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> that's right. Dan, the last time you were on the show, we talked about Michael Sussman, the former federal prosecutor, former partner at Perkins Coy, uh, former attorney for the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016. Um, he texted a senior FBI agent with information purported to tie the Trump campaign to the Russian government through Alpha Bank. And he lied when he said that he was seeking this meeting with the FBI as a private citizen, that he didn't represent any campaign or any person. It was just a lie. Now he's been charged with a felony lying to the FBI. It's punishable by up to five years in prison. Uh, and the more we learn, the more we realize that literally nothing of what he told the FBI was true. Special counsel John Durham um, released a a great deal of information on Sussman in response to Sussman's motions. 
the most recent uh, release was on Friday, and none of it looks promising for Sussman. None of it. His trial is scheduled to take place in a month. How do you think this plays out for him? Do you think he takes a guilty plea? I think he's in big trouble, and I think it's very possible there, there will be a plea deal. To me, the only question is, uh, is, is not whether Sussman lied to the FBI, but did the FBI want Sussman to lie to it? In other words, I mean, I mean, I mean was the FBI looking for, looking for certain, you know, a certain kind of information that, you know, that it very much wanted to be told, and the FBI itself was not too cons- was not really going to look too hard at the provenance of this information. Um, because the, the, the whole Durham investigation seems to assume that Sussman's the bad guy and the FBI are the, is the, is, you know, are the innocent dupes. And that doesn't really quite add up. Right. Because, because the FBI, we know, was filled with these crazy characters. Uh, Peter Strzok, for example, filled with you know, vehement hatred for all things Russian, willing to believe every will of the wisp, you know, I, I mean, passing off bad information to the, uh, to the, um, the secret court in charge of, uh, in charge of security, uh, you know, caught up in its own lies, doctoring information, et cetera. Or was, or was that the CIA, the CIA and FBI? And, you know, <laughs> so, 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 so those, those entities are hardly innocent parties. Yes. So the question is, 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 is this some kind of, is there a collusive, collusive aspect to the, the, the Sussman FBI encounters? I mean, that's what I want to know. And I think actually if Sussman does take a fall or if Sussman does enter into a plea in which he's required to cooperate with right. a Durham investigation, that could very, very easily, in my opinion, be the direction the investigation heads into. Well, that's actually my next question for you. Does does Sussman drag anybody else down with him? I find it very hard to believe that he made this meeting with the FBI of his own volition. So does he take one for the team? I doubt it. That's not the way things work in Washington. High priced lawyers don't take things for the team. Right. Um, Number one. Number two, uh, I am I am quite confident that he did not hit on this on this idea by himself. Uh, I am I'm I am totally confident that there was discussion of this whole this whole you know this whole these activities in top legal and democratic party circles that this was a very much a group effort uh and that there you know and that the fbi uh you know was also wanted to be lied to was itself predisposed to believe messages like those that Sussman was passing along so i think that's the i think it was that you know one man can't be held responsible for what was clearly a, a creation of an entire milieu, you know, stretching from the, uh, the, the Democratic National Committee into the uh, top rungs of the FBI and CIA. Jim, it was a very violent weekend uh, with two mass shootings in South Carolina and a mass shooting in Pittsburgh. Another 14 people were shot in Chicago over the weekend um, New Orleans had its bloodiest and most violent weekend in, uh, did I, what did I say, Jim? He said Jim, I think Dan. it's fine. We know we're talking to Dan Lazar. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, I've done that a couple of times today. Yeah. I mean, got, on, 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 I, it's Monday. Worms. My brain just isn't, <laughs> I, I'm just not focused. I got a lot on my mind. Sorry, but uh, New Orleans, I was saying, has its bloodiest yeah. weekend in 20 years. 
these were these issues were covered in, you know, the Times, the Post, the the Pittsburgh Post Gazette this morning. But everybody's got a, a different theory for why it's happening. Is it is it pent up frustration over over covid? Is it the economy? Why is this happening? It seems like the whole country's going nuts. Yeah, it really is. I mean, the, the country is going nuts and something something is happening that's sort of like, you know, post covid, you know, uh, Post exact, you know, exasperation with the the Biden uh, the Biden uh, administration, yeah. a sinking economy, inflation. Somehow, all these things are somehow leading to an upswelling of of craziness. Uh, but there's also guns, um, and you know, and the fact is, is that America has been unable to take the tiniest step towards 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 dealing with this problem and any kind of effective way. I mean, we've had million mom marches. We've had grandstanding by, by, by endless numbers of Democratic Party congressmen. We've had anguished editorials. We've had pledges by Democratic candidates, including Joe Biden, to do something, to come down hard, to solve this problem once and for all. And nothing has happened. Nothing. I mean, it is, a, it is an astonishing display of government ineffectuality. Um, and it's been going on for years. And there is no end in sight either. Yeah, I mean, this there's is no incredible, end in sight. There's an incredible indictment of, uh, of American government. And I think, by the way, that, that, that this is one of, the, one of the problems Joe Biden is facing in the midterms. I mean, it's not only inflation. It's a very serious upsurge in crime. Yes, uh, and New York City it's up it's up thirty six percent violent crime. I understand. So this is a this is very serious. It has voters really upset, really spooked, and they uh, and 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 poor and poor Sleepy Joe, you know, is in is in is on the line of fire because he promised to do something, and he has been able to unable to do anything, and therefore, you know, he's gonna get he's gonna you know wind up getting the blame in November. Yeah. Yeah, he, I think he is. One last question for you. The Washington Post uh, yesterday had a, a long front page story about uh, the possibility that Joe Biden would not run for president. And if he did not run for reelection, who would be the likeliest uh, Democrats to run in his in his place? Um, Joe Biden's poll numbers right now are lower than Jimmy Carter's were in 1979 into 1980. Uh, they're that bad. Uh, and, and so now I think the Democratic Party has to be serious about talking about the 2024 election with Joe Biden not being on the ticket. Now, the Washington Post thinks the two most likely uh, candidates, the two people most likely to win the nomination if Biden were to not run, would be uh, Pete Buttigieg and Kamala Harris. What do you think of that? I think it's. I think it's. It doesn't make any sense at all. I think Kamala Harris is is uh, is, is 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 greatly disliked. Her performance in the 2020 primary was really bad. When she finally quit, her, her poll numbers were in the in the low single digits, which was really abysmal. Uh, I think Put, Put, uh, Pete Buttigieg didn't do much better. Uh, he seems to be to be really kind of out of it. He's not very, you know, that seems a very impressive character. I don't think he has any kind of, you know, following in the general public. I think the Democrats as a whole will pay the price. 
And I, I, and I think it's kind of a hopeless task to find a, a shining knight in the ranks of the Democratic Party who will somehow save the day. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I keep saying I'm just, I'm just loath to make a prediction about an election that is still seven months away. But I really think the Democrats are facing a 1932. Yeah, I think, I think I mean, you're that, right. And that's the way it seems. We're going to have to leave it there. That was the voice of journalist and writer. Well, I, I just I'm, wanted to hear the end of the thought. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I thought we were out of time. No. So I'm looking at my I'm looking at my nuclear clock here, and it's telling me get off. All right. I want to hear what the, uh, Dan. Could you mind wrapping that thought up? I was interested. <laughs> Well, in 1932, the Republicans faced an epic wipeout that essentially yeah, eliminated them as a as a as a as a major political force for for actually 16 to 20 years. Yeah, it I mean, was it a generation 19- before they were able yeah. to to win uh, control of Congress again. Yeah, and, and they didn't win. I mean, it, it was it was five terms before they were able to win uh, the presidency. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And, 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 and I really think the Democrats may be facing that kind of debacle. Now, the problem is we have a Republican Party, which has been, you know, which is going galloping to the authoritarian yeah. Putin, Putinite, Le Penite, right? Yes. That's the issue. I think the whole country has moved to the right, <laughs> except for me and you and maybe maybe Dan. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's like where where do we go? I actually don't mind, wouldn't mind seeing the destruction of the Democratic Party, and I think the Republicans are going to self destruct eventually too. Yeah, and I, mean, I think I that, like, that that would be good for the country. I would like to see a, a principled left wing party with a lot more uh, support in national politics, right? And that's not to say there are there are left wing parties out there. Sure, they just don't get very much attention, and they aren't particularly large. So if the destruction, right. if the you know implosion of the Democrats meant more um, publicity and uh, power to those parties. Terrific. I would welcome it. Yeah. I mean, look what happened to the Whigs and the Know Nothings and all these other 19th century parties. Okay. Now we'll leave it there. We were happy to be joined by journalist and writer Daniel Lazar. You're listening to Political Misfits. Stay tuned. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou talking about uh, some economic performance numbers for China and the way they are being reported and also getting into, you know, the the terrible debt crisis uh, supposedly created for many emerging economies by the war in Ukraine. We're going to talk about how perhaps we should pay a little bit more attention into how all that debt got accumulated. Joining us for this conversation is John Ross. He's an author and economist and a senior fellow of the Chongyang Institute at Renmin University of China. Thank you for being here, John. Great to be here. So I thought some of the reporting on China's first quarter economic growth was really interesting because the theme seems to be, yes, okay, China's GDP grew by 4.8% this quarter. It was better than expectations, but just you wait, these COVID policies are going to be a disaster. And so I kind of feel like 
we have been hearing about how China's COVID policies are going to ruin its economy and the global economy for years now. And I just wonder when we will see this come to pass. I understand that, uh, you know, China's economic growth did better than expected, but it did also slow uh, this quarter compared to the last quarter. But I, I don't know the disaster is around the corner. And so I wanted to ask you what the new economic data says about how China's economy is doing and uh, what you think of its presentation outside of China. Well, I, it's just a joke. I mean, I've been writing about China's economy for 30 years and studying it for 40 years, right? And there is a whole little industry in the West which says China's economy is about to collapse next year. <laughs> and right. then when it, doesn't when it doesn't collapse, it then says it'll occur the year afterwards, right? It's, it's absurd. The, G the GDP figures, as they say, are above expectation. Obviously, there is very negative pressures taking place in the world economy at the moment. The IMF has already announced it's going to downgrade growth um, predictions for 143 countries, which is not a, not a small matter, right? And China's economy is continuing to grow um, strongly, not not merely from the point of the GDP numbers, but for example, industrial production's up 6.5%, investments up 9.3%. It's true that the COVID outbreak in Shanghai is the most serious since Wuhan. That's absolutely correct. And what does most serious means? It means it was announced with huge headlines that three people have died. Yeah. I mean, well, this is just a joke. In in the United States, you're, you're getting hundreds of people dying every day. And China is supposed to be in a big crisis because three people, I don't want anybody to die. Don't, don't misunderstand not. it. But, but, you know, this is nothing. It's nothing. The population is, there are some difficulties, there will doubtless be some negative economic effects, but fundamentally the population is being kept in al alive, whereas the population in the United States has been, let me put it bluntly, been systematically slaughtered. So this is just, it's just absurd the way that both information and COVID and on the economy is being presented. I mean, it's interesting how the reporting has shifted from you know, this is China's fault. China's not being forthcoming enough about COVID to now uh, China is too concerned about COVID and it's going to take the rest of the world economy down with it. Right. Because every time you have a, you know, a major lockdown like the one in Shanghai, uh, economic disaster is predicted to follow. But it hasn't seemed to as followed. And, and so I wonder, you know, are there are these uh, economic writers still genuinely concerned that these uh, uh, steps taken by China are going to have ripple effects that we all feel? Or is it just a way to sort of fear monger about China's activities? Because again, like China's economy seems to have recovered quite nicely uh, and things seem to be ticking along just fine. Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't want to pretend everything's perfect. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm in contact with people in Shanghai several times a day, right? Because, you know, I work in a Chinese institution, right? Okay. They're, they're locked down. Uh, they prefer not to be locked down. Uh, some of them have had a bit of difficulty to get enough food and so on, not not extremely seriously, because it's been now held by the government's free supplies. It's inconvenient. I'm not pretending it's perfect. No. But people are not people are not dying in large numbers. And that's the difference to the situation in the United States. As regards the economy, I mean, let, let's just take the last two years since COVID began. Right. Uh, China's economy has grown by 10.5% and the US economy has grown by 2.1%.
That means China's economy has grown five times as fast as the United States, yet you continue to have uh, headlines in you know, the United States about you know, deep economic crisis in China and so on. This is just absurd. It's, these, these people are not journalists. These are just propagandists. They're paid to write things which are untrue. They don't, they don't deserve any respect. They don't do any investigation. There are some, a few, a very small number of journalists in the West who do serious research and serious investigation and all credit to them. But the great majority of the Western journalists write whatever propaganda their owners want them to write. And, and this is shown in this situation. I mean, say, how can you say that the Chinese economy has grown five times as fast as the US? As fast as the US? How come this is a problem for China? I, <laughs> what do you think? I mean, what is what should be the lesson of the way China has handled COVID uh, so far, right? Including including these lockdowns, which again, yeah, are, are are tedious, are inconvenient, are unpleasant for people, are cause anxiety and stress, you know, and, and aren't simply aren't fun, right? But what what should be the, what would you think would be a sane lesson of looking at China's response to the pandemic and also the, the effect on its economy? The first and most fundamental is that China put people's lives first. If you look at the deaths in China, it's um, slightly under 5,000. In the US, it's almost a million. But even that underestimates the situation because China's population is more than four times that of the United States. If you had had the same level of deaths in China as you had in the United States, four million people would be dead. And if you want to know about human rights, the biggest demonstration of that is there are four million people alive in China who would be dead if the policies of the United States had been carried out, or put it another way round, the the number of people who'd be dead in the US would be less than um, less than 10,000 if they had the same thing as United, uh, same success as in China. Instead, it's more than a million. If you wanted a single illustration of who really stands for human rights, you can take the COVID record of China and the United States. Now, after that, I don't regard the, the economic issues, although I'm an economist, I don't regard that as the most important. I think the most important is saving human life. But nevertheless, the economic results, I've told you, is spectacularly in China's favour. So therefore, they're because most of the country is functioning normally. Again, because I, because I work in a Chinese institution, I'm not merely in contact with people in Shanghai, I'm in contact with people all over the country all the time. And most of the people are going about their business absolutely normally, as though nothing was happening. It is true that there is a bad situation in uh, Shanghai, um, and uh, but most of the country of China is going about its business without any difficulty or risk at all. So therefore, this is wrong from the point of the US, both from the point of the human life, which I consider the most important, but it's also wrong from the point of the economy. And particularly as the U.S. is heading into a big economic mess, it's absolutely obvious. You know, the U.S. is going to. The U.S. has got raging inflation at the present time, eight point five percent 
inflation compared to China's 1.5%, the US is going to have to apply the brakes in a sharp way economically because its economy is in a big mess. And this is going to very negatively affect uh, the US population, whose real wages have already fallen by 2.7% in the last year. So it's a both a COVID mess and an economic mess in the US. I also want to talk about uh, the rest of the world, because the Wall Street Journal today was reporting on um, some of the debt load that emerging markets are carrying. And uh, it turns out that the economies of, of some of these developing world countries are being threatened, not because of unfair trade practices or political coercion by the World Bank and the IMF. Uh, it's the war in Ukraine. So the war in Ukraine is to blame for the increase in food, energy and other prices uh, at a time when many central banks are raising interest rates to tame inflation. And now, you know, I don't want to pretend that the war in Ukraine has not affected global supplies and supply chains at all, uh, because it has. We've talked quite a lot about the role of Ukraine and Russia as as wheat providers. But it seems very convenient to be able to say that it is because of the Russian government uh, that other governments, and as the Wall Street Journal puts it, from Islamabad to Cairo to Buenos Aires, are struggling with rising import prices and debt bills after it tells us these governments have uh, been accumulating this debt for a decade. And so I wonder if you could talk to us about how some of these governments that are now perhaps facing a, a repayment crisis have ended up with so much debt uh, and the effect that this conflict could have on their ability to pay that debt, which again, they accumulated in this rules-based international system? Well, I'll put it very bluntly. The claim that the problem is due to Ukraine is a lie. I, I mean, I'm not going to beat about the bush about that. Let, let, me, let me just give the data. US inflation, which is the really fundamental thing, which is destabilizing everything, because it's a big uh, hit you know, to the population of the United States, it's an even bigger hit to the population of the global south, it's, and it's forcing a big increase in interest rates. Okay, US inflation rose from 2.5% in January 2019 to 7.5% in January 2022. Right, it's true that the war in Ukraine, well, uh, that is Jan the importance of January 2022 is there was no war in the Ukraine. So therefore, uh, US inflation tripled during that period. It's since gone up uh, from 7.5% to 8.5% since the war started. I don't actually believe that all of that 1% increase is due to the war in Ukraine. But anyway, even if you conceded that it was all due to the war in Ukraine, that means by far the bulk of the inflation in the US was created before the Ukraine war. It is an attempt to get out of the situation. To ex not what is happening is that the economic policy in the United States is creating this problem. I mean, I don't normally quote, quote the Wall Street Journal, <laughs> but nevertheless, it was very correct in an editorial in which it said, this inflation is made in Washington. Mm -hmm. And what is therefore happening is the U.S., the, the high inflation in the U.S. is very simple. It means that demand in the U.S., is much higher than supply. That's what's creating the inflation. Mm -hmm. So something has to be cut. Otherwise, inflation will do it automatically, incidentally. Mm -hmm. That's the if nobody takes a conscious decision, inflation will just do it. Right, okay. Mm -hmm. 
There are two possibilities. One which Bernie Sanders and other people have put out, put forward, is quite correct. The US needs to cut its military budget. It's completely overstraining the US economy. If it doesn't cut its military budget, the living standards of the American people will be very severely cut. And I think that's what's unfortunately happened. I was listening to your previous, the previous person on your show, right? The, the Democrats are heading towards a disaster because they are maintaining military expenditure while cutting the living standards of the American people. And, and on, that, on, on that line, they're looking for exactly, I think, a, a, I think the, the analogy that was made you know, to 1932 or, the, or to the Great Depression is not unrealistic. They can suffer a catastrophic um, economic defeat. And that, that's the choice. I mean, if you put it in the, there was a notorious statement by Hermann Goering, who said that the German people had to choose between guns and butter, of which he chose guns. He said, because he, he, in the Norse, the butter will make us fat. Strange thing for him to say, but anyway. <laughs> but butter will make us fat and guns will make us strong. What, what's happening in the United States is the, the democratic administration decide the policy of guns over butter, let's put it in that crude way, but I mean the living standards of the people. This is a devastating effect for the whole world. It's very negative. This high inflation is will throw hundreds of millions of people into poverty. The IMF on this matter is absolutely correct. Um, but it's also going to have a devastating effect on the living standards of the American people. And that, that's the real situation which we're confront. We're confronted with either the US cuts back its Cold War policies, its high military expenditure, or the US people are going to suffer greatly. I mean, I, I'm, I'm an old person. I, you know, I came into politics against the Vietnam War. And at that time, it was clear the, the US ex excessive military spending in Vietnam, in addition to being immoral and against the interests of the Vietnamese people, sent an inflationary wave through the world economy, which lasted for two decades. And this is what we're now confronting at the same time. The US, the US Cold War, now a hot war in the Ukraine, is destabilizing the whole economy, the world, whole world economy. Can I ask also, I mean... I you know, anytime this happens, right, the, the, the journal is reporting on, you know, these these uh, poor governments, emerging markets in their terms. Uh, they've they've accumulated all this debt. They did it while inflation rates were low and, you know, they, they piled it up and now inflation's going up and they're going to have trouble paying it off, as as we've described. But can we talk about, you know, the context that this crisis is occurring in where you have a system where supposedly all these wealthy countries really are uh, working to you know, get, offer a hand up to their poor neighbors and, you know, trying to create trade deals that are mutually beneficial. And I just think it's worth exploring. Like, why why is it the case then that these very poor countries keep accumulating so much debt, especially when so many of them are re, uh, resource rich? Right. And that, you know, we want to do business with them. And what how is it that you know, there are these cyclical crises, right, of countries being being unable to pay off this debt. Why are they in so much debt to begin with? And what about this system sort of perpetuates this cycle? Well, it's because the U.S. is, is the greatest accumulator of um, dollars in the world. The U.S. runs a gigantic balance of uh, trade deficit with the rest of the world. 
Now, what is a balance of trade deficit? It means that you are exporting your goods to a country and it's not paying you for them. <laughs> to put it in extremely blunt terms, it's not it's not returning to you. That is, you you are you are they the US, for example, is taking huge quantities of soya beans or wheat or ores, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and it's not returning anything equivalent. That's what a balance of trade surplus means. So instead, what these countries have done is they've accumulated dollars, and the US is then manipulating the dollar system. Because they were told, you know, they were they were going to borrow all these dollars at very low interest rates, and suddenly, due to the inflation, the um, the the interest rate is going up greatly. So therefore, they're being forced into a debt crisis. It's the that's what happens if you if you give your if you give your goods to another country like the United States and you're not paid for them. At some point, the country which you're giving your goods to for nothing will rip you off, and that's exactly what's happening at the moment. John Ross, that was John Ross, uh, author and economist. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Very pleased to be here. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Woody here with John Kiriaki with a few last headlines to give you. But just because we're getting to them at the end of the show doesn't mean we haven't been stewing about them for oh, quite boy. a long time. John's, I don't John's know why I take head these up about this personally. one. So there's a story that came out today that you and I talked about earlier. It wasn't worthy of a, a segment or anything, mm. but but uh, there was a there was a flight on, um, what was it, JetBlue. Over the weekend. Over the weekend. Yeah. And uh, it had 30, quote unquote, Christian musicians on, on the flight. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of the flight, they got their instruments out and they stood in the aisle and they started singing Christian worship songs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, you know, it's just me, but that would piss me off, right? I don't care what they're singing. But just the fact that they're singing anything at all is disruptive, right? So Ilhan Omar, um, the uh, congresswoman from Minnesota, tweeted a video of these people singing their Christian worship songs. And she said, um, uh, I think this is a quote. She said, I think my family and I should have a prayer session next time I'm on a plane. How do you think it will end? And she's exactly right, yeah. first of all. Can you imagine somebody getting up and shouting Allahu Akbar on a plane? I mean, I can imagine it. <laughs> it seem right. right. It seems like, or yeah. Or Bismillah Rahman yeah. Rahim. Yeah. Okay. Well, of course, just because she's unable to control herself, Marjorie Taylor Greene had to jump right into the mix. And she responded, would that be kind of like, quote, when some people did something? which is a completely out of context yeah, of course. quote of Ilhan Omar. Again, saying it's you can't for, forever in perpetuity blame all Muslims for the actions of a, a handful of criminals. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. So what Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, idea is, 
uh, is to say that Ilhan Omar could perpetrate an airline hijacking like 9-11. This is really, this is a theme with her. Like yeah, she's been saying, and also I think Lauren Boebert have both, yes. uh, com, you know, talked about how like, oh, I, I got into an elevator with Ilhan Omar wearing a backpack and yeah. my heart was in my throat. Just nasty and stupid. Just awful. And yeah, again, you know, the, the, the modern day Von Trapp's getting up to <laughs> sing on your JetBlue flight. It, it's just like, if no one's supposed to be standing up and saying, yeah. you know, just everybody. What if, what if, the rule, what if the rules just applied to everybody? What exactly. if they did just apply to everyone? Yeah. 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 I got a little bit of a kick out of this um, conservative protest in front of Disney World. Oh, uh, over the I'm weekend. so enjoying this. Ford Fisher uh, documented it down there. But I guess Laura Loomer, uh, noted nutcase Laura Loomer. I'm very proud to have been um, harassed repeatedly by Laura Loomer wow. on Twitter. Wow. Yeah. But they're out there with their, you know, like groomers. Yeah. Okay, groomers. It's the new thing. Uh, it's very, it's, I, I wonder how much electoral impact this really will yeah. have. You know what I mean? Like how, how long is the sort of Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Madison Cawthorn right. half-life, right? Because that's, the, there aren't too many of them no. right now. And but Lauren Boebert has, has a legitimate Republican primary opponent. So she may not even survive this campaign season. But you do wonder, like, it is, you know, there are people who are wound up enough to go and join these protests. There are people who are being worked up to think that, like, all teachers are potential pedophiles mm -hmm, and, and mm -hmm. you know, that we are, you know, they're coming for your, your children. Yeah. And it's really, it's, you know, it plays on really high stakes topics, right? Yeah. The safety of their children right. really, really matters I saw to a guy people. in the news the other day saying, well, everybody knows that male teachers have a propensity to become pedophiles. It's, it's like, what? what, what where, where in the world do you get that? Yeah, where does that come from? And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it it's scary in the sense that, you know, I don't, there are a lot of things you can smear people with, but something that is probably, go, you know, more likely to rouse someone to violence than saying, you know, it's more, you're more likely to rouse someone to violence against a person who you call a pedophile right. or a group that you say is supporting pedophiles. And if you say uh, they like cats instead of dogs, or we think their economic policies are backward, you know, like it's yeah. not this again, like the, the possibility for, for conflict and violence seems really elevated with this and i find it i don't know it's uh you know, I, it's i'm very unsettling willing to take uh, a lot of insults people have insulted me many 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 times over the course of my life and my career we have political differences what it is whatever it is but if somebody were to call me a pedophile or a groomer they're going to get my fist in their face yeah i mean you can't tolerate it and so yeah suggested this but turning on disney yeah this, this is yes it is sort of dismissed as culture war stuff and it is sort of literally culture wars right because we're talking about disney world and hollywood but what is going to happen if you have a sort of conservative shift away from that into a, i don't know i, I yes. mean i don't know what happens in terms of culture and entertainment it's it is all sort of fascinating but also very dismaying i think that you're right that there is a half life to this I think we're probably approaching it or at the half-life. And it dovetails with a lot of QAnon stuff. It, does. it dovetails with some anti-vax stuff. This sort yes. of, it predates the anti-mandate um, movements that we have seen to like, right. don't vaccinate your kids for diphtheria or whatever. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it could lead to a really frightening conjunction oh, of, um, of uh, motives, right? And themes, yeah. Uh, in some cheerful news, do you want to hear about the winners of the Boston Marathon? I thought this was Already? Pretty, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. 
Those winners run that race fast. Like, how is that it was a pos- sweep for Kenya Again, in the men's. Of course. Yeah. If it's not the Kenyans, uh, it's the Ethiopians. Uh, yes, for women, also a Kenyan edging out an Ethiopian. Oh, there, there you go. Um, they had a wheelchair race as well. The woman who won that was from Switzerland. She won for the fourth consecutive time. Wow. The man, I don't actually say, I'm assuming he's American because they didn't give us his uh, ethnicity or his national identity. Um, but one and uh, man, a wheelchair race, wow. an hour and a half. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Congrats. Yeah. yeah. That's going to be it for the day. We're going to come back here way sharper tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Man. <laughs> promise. Ten hours of sleep just isn't enough sometimes. Nope. John's got to go curl up in his cocoon <laughs> for another several hours. Thanks to the producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, we will see you tomorrow. 